This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again and if this is your first time please make yourself at home i want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support you are the ones who make very test possible tonight's special guest is monetary historian author and radio host andrew goss we'll discuss a secret world of money and who really rules the united states and the world and how this could be changed to break the shackles of financial slavery that keeps us and our own elected officials hostage of this sinister group. Andrew Goss will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full interview, become a Veritas member. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, click on the subscribe button and receive instant access. Why wait? Don't you think it's time to listen to the full story? When you become a member, you can listen to every program audio and video, hundreds of hours in CD audio quality, and you can take Veritas with you wherever you go. Don't wait any longer. Subscribe today. And visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase our futuristic metal-cased 8GB USB drives with Seasons 1 or 2 with bonus material. And you can also purchase MMS directly from us. You keep hearing me talk about MMS. If you want to know, Listen to my interview with Jim Humble, entitled Jim Humble versus the FDA. The winner is coming, and you know what that means. 
Don't get caught off guard. Go to the Veritas store and find out. You'd be glad you did. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of the Veritas members who participated in the Veritas poll. I wanted to take your pulse to find out what topics you were most interested in. So let me read to you the results from the bottom to the top. In 8th place, with 2.32% of the votes, Paranormal Phenomena. 7th place, with 2.59%, Alternative Health. 6th place, with 5.59%, New Science. 5th place, with 6.82%, Geopolitics or Current World Events. 4th place, with 10.64%, parapolitics or conspiracies. Third place with 16.37% hidden history slash archaeology. Second place with 20.46% UFO slash ET. And the first place with 35.2% goes to consciousness slash spirituality slash esoteric. How about that? This doesn't mean that the topics that came out last won't be discussed. They will. But it's great to know where you stand. Thanks again for your participation. And a few days ago, you heard me say that I want to give musicians a platform. So we're starting the Veritas Music Contest. If you're a member and are also a musician, here's your opportunity to compete. I still don't know what the prizes will be, if any, but at least we'll air the first three songs. What kind of song? It must be related to the topics we discuss here. Look at our poll if you forgot. You must own the copyright to the song. And I will have a link in the member section with more information about how to proceed. We will post all the songs in one special page where we'll take them to a vote. The top three songs will be featured during the next Inside Veritas show to air on December 23rd. All songs must be submitted by Wednesday, December the 7th at the latest. That's when submission closes. So you have approximately one month and a few days. So get to work on your own or with your band and good luck. Again, go to the member section for more information. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and also join me on Facebook. But now it's the Facebook like page because the friend page has reached its limit. Has the Occupy Wall Street movement decided what they are protesting? Could this movement have been orchestrated by the puppeteers? Why aren't they occupying the real culprit, the Federal Reserve? Do you want to know who owns the Federal Reserve and how much influence they have? Which in fact, it's more influential than our own elected officials. If this is the case, then there is no doubt that our president and representatives are there to keep the illusion that our government is one of the people, by the people, and for the people. But nothing can be further from the truth. Will there be a financial collapse? And if so, what practical solutions do we have? For this and much more, Andrew Goss is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas.
Don't go anywhere. This is John Perkins, and you're listening to Veritas. Andrew Goss is one of the most respected monetary historians and contemporary experts on the American and international banking systems. Andrew has a tremendous understanding of our monetary and economic systems and has attracted a wide following with over 1,000 TV and radio appearances. He is the publisher of a newsletter and has authored two books, The Secret World of Money and Uncle Sam Cooks the Books. And directly from the state of New Jersey, I would like to welcome for the first time on Veritas, Andrew Goss. Hello, Mr. Goss, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello, thanks for having me. May I call you Andy? Oh, please do, yes. Thank you very much. I uh, finished your books this week, and I have to tell you, one of them you wrote back in 1996, the first one, am I correct? Secret World of Money, yeah, 1996. I actually wrote it in 94 or 95 and went to press uh, 4th of July, 1996. But it's almost, if, if folks, if you read him right now, it's almost as if he wrote him right now because everything he said, although it's, it's a lot of historical fact, a lot of your projections have come to, to, to be true. And that's why I'm so glad to have you here. First of all, Andy, let's talk about the, the elephant in the room. Occupy Wall Street. I sure. really just cannot understand what their true purpose is. Do you know? No, I don't think they know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we have protesters from all walks of life. Uh, they're protesting greed. They're protesting uh, the corporate takeover of America. They're protesting high college tuition. I even saw one group down there protesting the wearing of fur. So I imagine anybody who sees a crowd and wants to join a protest would fall right in with the bunch at Occupy Wall Street. You know, I think Wall Street is perhaps a symptom of the problem. Why aren't they occupying the real culprit, the Federal Reserve System? Well, I think they don't understand the nature of the beast. Um, I mean, I did wade through the crowd to ask these folks where they thought money came from. And by and large, the majority thought the government issued the money. And so I think with such a weak understanding of the monetary system, uh, this is why they're protesting at the banks instead of at the Federal Reserve, where they probably belong. I think you're right there. Do you think that perhaps... Um, and I don't want to get political here, but you think that the ones in power may be promoting this because it, it, it just takes away from the real problem once again, the Fed? Oh, yes. This is definitely uh, <laughs> this is definitely the work of the Demopublicans. 
or is it the Republicrats? <laughs> Same thing. I, right? I get those two confused. You know, the reality is that both political parties cater to this same super group. And if you look at the owners of the Federal Reserve banks, primarily the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and then you look at the campaign contributions on the FEC website, you'll see that the number one contributor to both political parties are the owners of the Fed. Then the number two contributors are their lawyers. And the number three contributors are their lobbyists. So by and large, the campaigns of this nation's politicians are funded and financed by the owners of the Fed. And I think for that reason, uh, you're very unlikely to see anyone speak out in more than a whisper ab about them. In, in your book, and even these days, there's a lot of talk about auditing the Federal Reserve. We heard uh, Congressman Ron Paul talk about it and some other government officials talk about it. But do we even have jurisdiction to audit it? I say preferably abolish the Federal Reserve, but does Congress have the authority or jurisdiction to even audit it? No, they do not. Uh, in fact, uh, if you look at everything about the Federal Reserve, they're super jurisdictional. They're not inside the jurisdiction of any a regulatory body. But the thought of abolishing the Fed is rather frightening to me because, I mean, imagine us, Mel, we're going to get on a boat at the dock there and it's called the SS Fed and we're heading out into the water and up in the wheelhouse there, of course, Ben Bernanke and all of his crowd are steering the boat and they're steering it further south. It's getting colder and colder and all of us standing out on the deck are getting colder and colder and less comfortable. At that moment, do we want to sink the ship? Do we want to end the Fed? Or does it make more sense to go storming into the wheelhouse and let Bernanke and his boys go overboard and take over the Fed? And that, to me, seems like a much more logical solution. Before we uh, go off and sink this boat that we're all dependent on, uh, let's take over the, the helm and steer it back to where will be the comfortable ones. So you are a proponent of doing it gradually then? Yeah, but no. You know, when I've gotten into conversations with this, with, and I'm a strong Ron Paul supporter, don't get me wrong, but when I've gotten into conversations with this with folks from the Austrian School of Economics, mm -hmm. the von Mises Institute and the like, their attitude is, okay, we have a transition period, a transition period where we move from a Fed-controlled economy to a a people-controlled economy. And I would ask you, if you came home one day and you saw three burglars burglarizing your house and you walked into your room and said, okay, you guys stand right there while I call the police, you know, are they going to just stand idly by while you call the police and have them arrested and put in jail? I don't think so. I think, in fact, they'll probably do their worst at that moment in this transition period. So I don't think a transition will work at all. I think a simple takeover with the Marines by executive order on any given Monday. You know, if I were president, that's what ha would happen. My Marines would surround the Federal Reserve Bank, and one of my generals would walk in and say that this is now the property of the government of the United States, and everyone here works for us. You're all drafted, and uh, I would be in charge. That would be a government institution and not a privately held institution. Now, from there... Uh, where the profits of that institution go, in my view, should be back into the treasury because the functions of the Fed are not bad. It's just that the profits now are siphoned off 
for the benefit of the owners. And it's important to, to go back to your book because a lot of people don't know this, but in your book you say Congress required auditing the Fed by the General Accounting Office in 1976, but exempted all monetary activities from such audits. Audits are restricted to real estate and office supplies, etc. So at least taxpayers know how many paper clips they use. That's right. You know, when I looked through that audit, um, and again, you know, for those who swear the Fed has never been audited, this audit is out there and available. I, this is where I found that they had 47 Learjets, Mel. I found that they had an art collection that had been accumulated since 1913 and was on the books with about a $30 million price tag. And that they had a full-time curator that looked after this art collection. And, and that it wasn't on public view. This was art that they kept in their private offices. So this type of spending, just on its face, exempt from appropriation, exempt from oversight by Congress... Even if you don't audit the Fed, forcing them to turn all of their earnings over to the Treasury and then come to the Congress for an appropriation the way every other federal agency does, I think that might eliminate some of the bulletproof limos and the subsidized dining and the cafeterias and things of that nature and the fitness workout centers and the exorbitant perks that the uh, owners of the Fed enjoy and the employees as well. It was Baron Rothschild who said, give me control over a nation's currency, and I care not who makes his laws. If that's the case, then is it safe to say that the, the one entity that really rules the United States, and perhaps even whenever there's a, a, a central bank in any other country, would it be safe to say that it is the Federal Reserve System who rules the United States? Oh, no question about it. Yeah, the, the Federal Reserve Banks and its owners own and control the bulk of the wealth of the United States. You know, this is one thing that the Wall Street people, Occupy Wall Street rather, have correct, and that is that that 1% slice or segment, uh, and it's all been handed, you know, it hasn't been earned. Uh, the idea that you, if I said to you, Mel, I want you to go out tomorrow and buy every radio, TV station you can get your hands on, and I'm going to create money and loan it to you so that you can accomplish this, how difficult would that be for you? Not at all, right? And so this is the way that the Federal Reserve has used its power to put its friends and those in its circle into control of all major industry in this country. In fact, there's a Senate report on the subject called Interlocking Directorships Among the Major U.S. Corporations, and it'll clearly outline how in the period from 1913 to about 1935, the Federal Reserve ultimately consolidated its ownership. And I, again, I speak of the owners of the Fed, obviously not the bank itself, but those entities that own it uh, have permeated themselves into every single institution of any substance in the United States. So, yes, it is fair to say that the Federal Reserve rules this country. And President Garfield, you remember that one who was assassinated by a lone nut? Yep. He said, uh, whosoever controls the volume of money is the absolute master over industry and commerce. And you know, one thing I really always find coincidental is that the Income Tax Act and the Federal Reserve Act were passed in the same year. Was that a coincidence? No, it was not. In fact, if you read the, the writings of John Maynard Keynes, who is a favorite of those uh, um, <laughs> sure. supply-side economists, yep. you'll see how he points out that Absent this regulation, this is the really what an income tax is, it's acting as a spillway 
for all the excess money that comes into circulation. So imagine a pipe and it, at one end of the pipe, the Federal Reserve is pouring in money. And at the other end of the pipe, the money is coming out and going into the businesses and coffers and, and hands of workers in the United States. If the Fed just kept increasing the money supply at that other end of the pipe, then the supply of money would grow so large that it would obviously cause inflation. So in order to regulate the inflation that the increase in money would cause, then they needed an income tax in order to siphon away your purchasing power. Now, in fact, Beardsley Rummel, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, excuse me, president of the New York Fed in 1946, wrote a great piece, it's available widely on the internet, entitled, Taxation for Revenue is Obsolete. The idea that the federal government uh, would have to tax in order to generate revenue is absurd. It owns a printing press. So it could theoretically simply print all of the money that it needed in order to finance its operations. And that's effectively what they do now with the majority of our income tax going not to pay principal or not to pay uh, interest or rather of, of public works projects, but rather just to pay interest on the national debt. And, you know, sometimes you have to explain the layman how the Federal Reserve works, but they just can't seem to, to, to even grasp the fact that it's the equivalent of me taking a, a and I hate to sound uh, like this, but taking a roll of toilet paper, giving it to you and say, you know, each sheet is going to have this value, when in reality, there's no value at all. And they make their money in interest. And what else do they make their money on? Well, the interest is the key to it all. You know, if you think about it, let's say Congress spends $1,000 that it doesn't have. Uh, they could raise taxes and collect more taxes from us, or they most likely issue a bond. I owe you $1,000 paying this much interest every year. Now, they hand that bond over to the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve simply creates the money, the note. Right. And gives it to the Congress. So now Congress has money to spend, and the Federal Reserve has a bond that yields interest. But that is one, only one way that they make money. The second most important way that they make money is in financial operations, what they call open market operations, FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, is that branch of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that's charged with conducting monetary policy. Now, most people know or believe that the Federal Reserve controls interest rates, and therefore that's how they control the flow of money, by either raising interest rates if they want money to slow down, or lowering interest rates if they want money to speed up. But the real power in the Fed lies in its ability to buy from the open market bonds, bills, and notes issued by other entities with money that it generally creates. So now the owners of the Fed set themselves up as primary market makers. Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and a host of others. There's 22 primary dealers, and they're the only ones that are allowed to buy debt from the United States Treasury. Once they buy that debt instrument, that bond, that bill, or that note, then they simply walk it over to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, who buys it from them. At, of course, a substantially higher price. And this allows, uh, effectively, the owners of the Fed to siphon off a greater portion of the productive capacity of this nation and pay themselves enormous amounts of money for providing what amounts to little more than a dubious service. And, of course, even the fact 
uh, of making waves of saying that we'll audit or try to abolish the Fed. All they need to do is choke the economy, or if let's say they don't like the the, the incumbent uh, president, they can do what they can to choke him even more so that he's not reelected. And if they like him, they do the opposite. Is that true? Yes, indeed. That's like the burglars, right? They're waiting for the police to arrive. They may pummel you to death and ransack your house. Uh, the fact is that the power of the Fed is well known indeed. And if you look at monetary history, you'll find that the Federal Reserve's forerunner was two institutions. The first bank of the United States, which was ended with the War of 1812, and the second bank of the United States, which was killed by Andrew Jackson. That's right. Now, Andrew Jackson, in his campaign, said that, you know, these guys control the economy. They absolutely are masters over this nation, and they're a den of vipers, and I want to rout them out. And the, the president of the of this, uh, Second Bank of the United States at the time was a gentleman named Nicholas Biddle. And Mr. Biddle told Jackson that, look, if you do this, well, I'm going to absolutely choke down on everything that is the economy, and I'll make situations so bad that uh, you'll beg me to come back and, and uh, run the banking system. And so he did do exactly that. He called all of his banking branches and all of his banking folks, and he sent out circulars that said, recall all of your loans, don't make any new loans, don't favor businesses that support Jackson. And in doing this, Mel, he overplayed his hand. He revealed to the American people that, look, these guys are, in fact, as powerful as Jackson says they are. Whereas before they were running things from behind the scenes, once Jackson forced them out into the daylight, why then their power was revealed to the people who quickly swatted them down. I would like very much for that to happen today. I'd like to see the Federal Reserve exert its power and choke the economy and create the type of depression that they threaten. Because maybe then the American people would see that they are, in fact, in control of everything that is the United States of America. And this is a historical aspect that not a lot of people know, is that from 1840 to, to 1861, it was really a great period for, for the United States. And because of Jackson, he ensured that no private central bank was allowed to create American currency. So the U.S. Treasury became the central bank, and it meant a debt-free U.S. Treasury. If history can repeat itself, is that where you see the United States going? Well, that's more of the Austrian model, and I, and I want to make that clear. The, the elimination of the monopoly power to issue money is what, uh, what the Jackson Revolution entailed. See, he didn't so much eliminate fiat or unbacked money or credit money. What he did was eliminate the monopoly power of the First Bank or Second Bank of the United States to issue these notes. So quite simply, if you and I wanted to start a bank and issue, you know, Bank of Mel and Andy notes, to the extent that the marketplace would accept those notes and to the extent that we could redeem them and, and not commit fraud, we would be free to do that. Imagine now if McDonald's started issuing money or if other major corporations started issuing their own money notes. Uh, that would be tremendous competition for the Federal Reserve indeed. And so this monopoly power to issue money is what the Fed has and what the Austrians suggest should be taken away. Uh, they suggest we should go back to a gold-backed money. You know, gold defined, one ounce of gold is so many dollars. 
One ounce of silver is so many dollars. And then anyone who wants to issue notes for money, I owe you money, <laughs> uh, is free to do so. Uh, I disagree with that. I think that the power to issue money, fiat money, should rest with the government of the United States and with our elected officials. Now, I know Congress doesn't get much right, and if you allow them to, they'll spend all willy-nilly like a bunch of drunken sailors. Yeah. But I can't see them doing a worse job than the Fed has over the last 95 years. And the question is, why do we even... Well, before I ask you that, didn't the same owners of the Federal Reserve System, weren't they the ones who caused all the financial trouble before 1913, all the panics, so that people would clamor for some kind of order so that in their minds those panics didn't repeat itself? You know, this is the Hegelian dialectic, right? It is Problem, the, reaction, solution, sure. Yeah, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Right. And so, you know, the idea that, oh, look at this terrible problem. In this case, you're right, in 1907, J.P. Morgan Chase, J.P. Morgan at the time, <laughs> wasn't Chase yet. J.P. Morgan, the bank, said that the Knickerbocker Trust, also a bank, a trust company in New York City, was unable to pay its bills and as a result, was insolvent. Now, this wasn't true. But in starting this rumor, the firm of J.P. Morgan, and again, very similar to the panic that just occurred, where J.P. Morgan said that Bear Stearns was insolvent, demanded additional collateral from that firm, and then took the collateral that they had on deposit, even though it was in excess of how much they were owed, uh, they did the very same thing in 1907 to Knickerbocker Trust. They demanded excess collateral, seized the collateral that they had, so therefore they couldn't pay their depositors, and they started a bank panic. And when the bank panic came in full mode, then they had the Peugeot hearings, headed up by Arsene Peugeot, where they very famously called in J.P. Morgan and Henry Davison and Frank Vanderlip and the other so-called financiers of the day, and they grilled them before a congressional committee and came away with, uh, this is a terrible, terrible crisis, and here's the solution that we offer, the Federal Reserve Act. And the Federal Reserve Act will take away these people's power to do all of this and will concentrate that power in this Federal Reserve Bank, which everyone assumed was federal. After all, it's named right. federal, right? It was no mistake. It was not an accident that they gave it that name. They did it on purpose. And it was in response to a problem that they themselves created. So, yes, that is the Hegelian dialectic in action. And the Federal Reserve has certainly been using this technique long before Professor Hegel ever put it into, into words. And the question is, why do we even need an entity that lends money to the United States at interest when our own treasury could print the money interest-free to the United States, wasn't that what Kennedy tried to do? And do you think that maybe he was murdered because of this? Well, I do know that uh, President Kennedy, President Garfield, President McKinley, and President Lincoln all had the idea of issuing United States notes. Think of a Federal Reserve note versus a United States note. President Lincoln called them greenbacks, yeah. and he prosecuted the war rather successfully and said rather publicly that once this is over, I'm getting rid of the National Bank Act, and we're going to fund this entire monetary system with greenbacks. Well, with his assassination, those greenbacks quickly left circulation. 
Now we fast forward to the next president who tried it, right? Mr. Garfield did exactly the same thing with United States notes. A lone nut, just like Mr. Lincoln, assassinated Mr. Garfield. Then came William McKinley. Again, United States notes as a single method of funding our unfunded debt. Lone nut assassinated him. June of 1963, President Kennedy switches the backing of the dollar from gold to silver and authorizes the issuance of United States notes and silver certificates for all silver held in the vaults and not then committed. Again, lone nut assassinates him. What's an interesting point there is that by November and his assassination, these notes were already starting to be withdrawn. And by the spring of the following year, there was not a U.S. note in circulation anywhere to be found. Now, when I wrote that book, Secret World of Money, in 1996, I gathered up as many of these United States notes as I could and included one with every book that I sold. And today, those U.S. notes that were included in the original copy of The Secret World of Money in 1996 are actually worth more than the book was. Is that right? So, yeah, they are coming around in terms of uh, people understanding what they are. If you've ever seen them, they look just like your regular money. Uh, they're printed $2, they're even $100 denominations, but they say on the top, United States note, and they have a red seal instead of a green seal. And nowhere on the note is the Federal Reserve mentioned. But other than that, the design is the same, the artwork is the same, uh, and they are effectively the same. And you're right. They could be issued by the Treasury, not so much debt-free, because remember, they do represent the debt of the United States, but certainly interest-free in that they would not uh, require a circulating uh, that uh, interest be paid on the circulating medium. You know, every piece of paper money in circulation right now is offset by an equivalent amount of bonds. You know, one of the mythologies in this patriot community is that the Federal Reserve simply prints money, creates it out of thin air, and then throws it into circulation. But that's not exactly true. The only way it enters circulation is through the open market committee. So the Federal Open Market Committee creates a pile of $100 bills and then uses them to buy uh, United States bonds and notes. Those bonds and notes then go into the vault where they bear interest. And then the notes go out and circulate as people's money. So for every Federal Reserve note that you have in the vault is a, is a bond that bears interest on that note. So it's as if our circulating money has an interest payment attached to it. If we took all of the bonds that are on the Federal Reserve's pile right now, and, and that's something like $2 trillion, uh, and we eliminated that pile and issued United States notes in their stead, we would save the interest on $2 trillion every single year. And that money could go towards paying down the principal or reducing the budget deficit or whatever else we decide to do. But as the system is currently structured without U.S. notes, with Federal Reserve notes in the mix, then about 100% of everything that we pay in income tax is used simply to pay interest on these notes. And that's uh, really what enriches the Federal Reserve. I wonder if what I'm about to ask you is an urban legend or if it's factual. So I'm glad to have you here. Is it true that the Fed was granted... Uh, with the Federal Reserve Act, a 99-year franchise 
no. to, to, to print the money and that they were going to be paid 1% of our gold every year until 2012 when this expires. Is that true? No, it isn't. Uh, in fact, if you read the Federal Reserve Act, they were granted, far worse, a perpetual charter. Oh. And in fact, all of the gold was turned over to the Fed uh, to back our newly issued Federal Reserve notes in 1934. So you have two executive orders, actually one executive order that you need to read to confirm that for yourself. And I'll send anyone who wants that a copy. It's the Federal Reserve signed by, uh, excuse me, the executive order signed by Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, that required the turning over of all gold to the Federal Reserve, not to the Treasury of the United States. Confiscation but, to the Fed. Right. Explain that. Well, the executive order said that any American who was currently holding gold bullion in 1934 yeah. had to turn that gold bullion, bars, coins, over to the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve would then give them Federal Reserve notes, newly issued Federal Reserve notes for that gold. And then that gold would then be put in a pile in Fort Knox <laughs> and then all the notes would circulate against this pile of gold. Uh, unfortunately, the majority of that gold was moved from the Fort Knox facility to the basement of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, huh. where it sits today. So it wasn't a 99-year charter. It was a much worse, a perpetual charter, meaning 999 years plus forever and eternity until Congress revokes the charter. The charter is in full force. Each of the banks, the 12 banks, were granted their own charter, and all of the gold possessed by the United States is pledged against the note issue. So they got it all at once, folks. They didn't get it 1% a year. They have all of the gold. It technically belongs to them. Incidentally, you know, Ron Paul called for an audit of the, of the nation's gold reserves. I think more to reveal this fact, that although it may be sitting in Fort Knox or in the U.S. Depository at West Point, the fact is that it is backing our unit, uh, Federal Reserve note issue. And with nearly $15 trillion in circulation and only 260 million ounces of gold on the books, that's not even a, a hundred to one cover. In fact, if you took all the Federal Reserve notes that currently exist and put them in a pile and divided it against the all of the gold owned by the United States or in the Federal Reserve's vaults, you'd get a price of gold in excess of $57,000 an ounce. That's why I think gold is dramatically underpriced at today's levels. Who owns the gold in Fort Knox? Is it the United States? No, it's pledged against the Federal Reserve notes. It's a collateral. So, collateral, yes, huh. exactly, yes. So why don't they tell us how much gold they have? Is it because of the involvement of the Federal Reserve? No, they do. In fact, you know, this is one of the best documented conspiracies ever. Okay. They, they do have a, a balance sheet published that tells us how many ounces of gold are being held. It's currently around 261 million ounces. Additionally, the Federal Reserve publishes an H41 balance sheet every single day so i mean you could go in there and find out on a daily basis how much money they've put into circulation how much they own how much they control and furthermore this audit of the fed that senator bernie sanders managed to get through in an amendment caused the fed to have to release all of the monetary data of the transactions it undertook during this monetary crisis so a glimpse into the fed 
unlike any ever before provided in history, shows us some 15 or $16 trillion worth of monetary transactions involving the Central Bank of Libya and other so-called enemies of the United States. But yet, we the people reacted with a ho-hum and a yawn, um, much like the defense attorney that drowns the plaintiff's lawyer in a mountain of paperwork and says, here, you sort through and find the real meat. This is what the Fed has done to us, and any meaningful audit of the Fed is going to result in such a dump of data that I don't think the American public will have the stomach for sitting and sifting through it, that's for sure. And even if they do audit the Fed and they come out with a few anomalies, they'll say, okay, we'll correct them, they'll move on forever. Next. That's right. That's right. right. That's exactly right. But Social Security. I remember mm. when I was growing up, my parents would, would request my Social Security number when I was you know, 15 or 16, when I was ready to have my first job. Now, even hours after your baby's born, the nurses have the paperwork right there, and they literally do not let you leave the hospital unless you fill the information out. Is there a correlation here between this and making you and I and our children collateral the moment they're born? Well, this is true. There is, and that's a bit of an urban legend, but there is a, a degree of truth like all the urban legends, right? And here's the degree of truth in that, Mel. You know, the International Monetary Fund sets standards. So if you went to a bank today and you said, I want to borrow $100 and I'm going to pay it back with the income from my job. And here's my job and I have income and here's my tax form and it shows that I'm going to make the money to pay you back. Well, then the bank approves the loan. Well, think of the United States government as that same type of creditor. And so each time it applies for a loan, it has to be able to show a revenue stream. Right. Where does its revenue stream come from? Well, it comes from the workers that pay tax on their labor. And this tax is represented by the Social Security number. So each time they get another Social Security number assigned to another person, why that's one more revenue stream that they can add to the pile and therefore expand their monetary system. So the IMF sets very specific standards and to the extent that the federal government can provide this collateral, in this case a Social Security number attached to a working individual with a working lifetime and some apparent degree of revenue that will result in tax income for the government, then okay, now then you can borrow more. You can create more. So yes, it's true, but no, it's not true. You know, it's one of those um, in the middle type of things. There is a certain degree of truth to it, but it is not true that they hold your birth certificate in some account somewhere and they are using your physical body as collateral. What's the difference between the IMF and the World Bank? Well, the International Monetary Fund uh, has a lot more power than the World Bank. Think of the World Bank as an institution that's established for purposes of lending money. Uh, the IMF is establishes, established for the purpose of supervising the monetary system worldwide. So you have to think of the IMF as the central bank for the central banks. Uh, and with it, of course, all that power. Uh, this, of course, this is the institution that it is intended to dominate world finance as we head towards a single currency or a one world currency. The IMF will play the leading role in that uh, scenario. So let's see if I understand this correctly. But by the way, who's behind the IMF? Is it the United Nations or is it the central banks? 
It is the central banks, yeah. Primarily the, uh, the United States was behind the IMF. So if the IMF were to be the, 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 the centralized bank for the entire planet, don't they need every single country to be united, one currency? Isn't this what's happening with the United States? And I have to say, today I was surprised because we, what is it, the Dow went up to 12,000. Uh, 12, uh, sure. we, we have uh, 400 points. So these ups and downs, and we, you know, I remember a year or two ago, if the stock market went down 50 points, the alarm bells were, would ring. But lately, it goes down 300 points and nobody says anything. The next day sure. it goes up to 400. So is this being manipulated and is the end goal to kill the United States economy so that it's easier to clamor for a new world currency? No. In fact, um, the world is getting a new world currency. It's just not new to us. <laughs> the dollar and Dollar Inc. is the preeminent brand in the world. They've yes. spent 90 years building it. So to suggest that now they're going to demolish the dollar and somehow bring a new currency to bear that people are going to trust is absolutely flying in the face of, of monetary history. It's very hard to develop the type of confidence in a monetary system that would be required to replace the dollar with another currency. And the Fed has had so many opportunities to crash and completely obliterate the United States economy that they, I think it's fair to say that if they wanted to do that, they would have already done so. The per first example, and very perfect one, would be the 9-11 debacle. So here, I had written a, a newsletter in 1997 entitled The River of Money. And it talked about how going under the Hudson River uh, into New York City were these two gigantic electronic pipes, if you will, and into them flowed the wealth of the nation. All of the little banks all throughout the country would aggregate their deposits every night and send them through this pipe to New York City where they would bounce around in the World Trade Centers and then be wired to Hong Kong and they would work all night long and then be wired back to the United States the following day. Because New York is the capital of money for the United States. Indeed. So much money flowed through these pipes I calculated we could pay off the national debt. Well, of course, in that day, it was much lower than now. Yeah. But we could pay off the national debt every two days with the amount of money that flowed through there. So now imagine all of the banks the night before 9-11 had wired all of their depositors' money into New York City. And there it was wired to the Far East, where it worked all night long. And so now we wake up that morning of 9-11, and the banks and the money center were supposed to have wired that money back to the banks in the middle of the country. They couldn't do it naturally because they were demolished. So all that the Fed had to do was nothing at all. Had they done nothing at all, there would have been no money. The entire country would have collapsed overnight. Never mind overnight, by lunch. What the Fed did instead was very interesting, Mel. You know, they stood up. I don't know if you've ever, you've ever seen what we did here in New York City. We shot those two beams of light in the air, yes. right? Mm -hmm. to represent where. Well, imagine that that was the Fed that day. And they shot those two beams of light up and said, we're here. And so any transaction that you had with a person or entity in this building that hasn't been cleared, you just tell us and we'll clear it for you. 
And that's what they did, Mel, all day. And over the next few weeks, they injected some $60 billion into the system, replacing the counterparties that were destroyed in the Federal Reserve, excuse me, in the World Trade Center. If the Fed wanted to crash the economy, all it had to do was nothing, and it would have crashed and collapsed. What would that benefit them anyway, if exactly. they were to do that? Exactly. Where's the profit in a crash? If right. somebody can show me that, when you already have the power to create money and buy everything in sight, I mean, what good is a crash to you? What good is a collapse? Now, I've heard the argument that it allows you to improve or increase your power, but I would argue that they can improve and increase their power incrementally and that Americans won't sit still uh, for anything that happens overnight. If it's dramatic, they'll get up and do something. But if it's slow and incremental, then they'll allow it to happen, much as they have the complete and utter erosion of our constitutional rights over the last 50 to 70 years. So the Fed, uh, quite honestly, likes an open market to the extent that they can control it. It allows them to have all of the luxuries that are um, inherent in this type of a system. You know, they have people that can come and clean their pools and take care of their cars and manufacture the goodies and the Lear jets that they fly around in uh, and still be in control of the system. If we are in abject poverty with no manufacturing, no industry, and no um, uh, means of production, then they have nothing to consume with their billions that they've made. So from my view, the, the Federal Reserve... You know, just like shearing sheep on a farm, you don't slaughter the sheep. You simply take their coat and then send them out in the field to generate more. Well, let's say another country. Let's not even name them. But let's say they create a central bank and they start printing their own money. In the eyes of the world, it may not be worth that much. Why is it that the United States dollar can be backed by our name, if you will, because that's all that we could use? Or is it the military might that's standing behind it? You know, I've said many times, Mel, the dollar is backed with F-16s and Marines. There you go. That's what backs our money. And if you think of the Arab oil embargo of 1973, yeah. now the, the way that most Americans were studying, it's like the War of 1812. You know, what caused the Arab embargo of 1973? Oh, it was because of our support of Israel. All right, but no. The reason for the Arab oil embargo of 1973 is that President Nixon closed the gold window. He closed the gold window and said, from now on, we're not going to pay our bills with gold. We're going to pay them with unbacked dollars. And the Arabs said, well, we don't want that. We Castle want Bretton Woods. That's right. We want gold. And so we're going to not sell you oil unless you pay us with gold. And President Nixon sent Henry Kissinger over there. And in reminiscent of a scene from The Godfather, it probably went something like this. Hey, this nice kingdom you got here. <laughs> it would be a shame if a bunch of Marines were to, like, come rolling through here and take everything. You know, you can have all the gold you want, but how are you going to defend it? Wouldn't you be better off to be friendly with us, take our paper money, we'll protect your kingdom, we'll guard you. We won't let anyone say anything to you. You can conduct human rights in whatever fashion you see fit within your kingdom. And if anybody gives you any nonsense, we'll send our Marines and our F-16s in and protect you. Well, this is an offer that they couldn't refuse, and they didn't refuse. And in fact, immediately after that, the tremendous military aid that flowed through the Middle East created a situation that is today untenable was all the result of closing the gold window. 
We had the strongest currency on the planet because of our gold reserves and because of our ability to back them with a military force that couldn't be defeated. And that really gave the dollar preeminence and strength that eventually it didn't matter that the gold backing was eroded and taken away. What mattered was the strength that stood behind the dollar, and I don't think that's uh, challengeable by any power on the earth right now. And with the Saudi, Saudi Arabia, not only will we protect you, but we'll even allow you to buy our own media here. I mean, what is it? 18% of, of uh, News Corp, Corp is owned by a Saudi prince? I'm a great percentage of Citigroup. That's right. And, uh, and, and many other things. Of course, you know, this is part of the circle of friends that we agreed to include uh, when uh, the Federal Reserve was formed. More recently, these same uh, inroads are made with the People's Republic of China and, and the uh, who's who in that country. Mm -hmm. So the folks in China who really call the shots are cut in to various deals that also enrich them. Uh, in fact, if you look, during the height of the financial crisis, in a very quiet mode, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York granted the Central Bank of China, in partnership with Goldman Sachs, uh, a part ownership in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York by virtue of their opening a branch office in New York City. So here, instead of being enemies with the Chinese, as many would have us believe, we are in fact partners with the Chinese in the form of Goldman Sachs. Do you think the United States would have uh, grown the way it has without Nixon's move of removing the, the gold back into dollar? You know, that, that is a, an interesting question. Uh, I can't say that I've analyzed it as much. Whether we would have grown, like you mentioned before, the 14,000 Dow. 12,000. 12,000, whatever. That's measured against a money supply of $15 trillion. When President Nixon was in office, we had a money supply of less than $1 trillion. So would we have been able to grow the money supply by 15 times without removing the gold backing? I highly doubt it. Right. In fact, um, without that... Uh, we could not have created as much money as we had or as much debt as we had. So perhaps the control that was intended with the gold standard um, would have made the nation a better place for us today. Uh, but it certainly would not have been better for the Federal Reserve. Uh, for those who wonder, what is it? What was it? 1944, when Bretton Woods, uh, it, it pegged commodities with with the dollar not only gold but uh, other commodities like oil petrodollar do you think the petrodollar is what keeps the united states as strong as it is because every barrel of oil comes back to the united states in dollars yes exactly you know if you examine bretton woods and you see the genius of it here we had just one world war ii and we had consolidated if you will all the powers Anyone who had any power was, of course, uh, consolidated in World War II. And typically, if you we talked about the IMF before, you know, their establishment came on the heels of um, the reparations that Germany was paying to the rest of the world after they lost World War I. And so typically, this is what's done. So we defeat a country, a country is defeated, and then they have to pay reparations 
a portion of their productive wealth is turned over each year to the victors. And people expected that the United States would demand reparations after World War II, but we didn't. Instead, what we said is, look, all that we want from our efforts in this war is for oil to be priced in dollars. And if you'll just give us that, we'll give you the Marshall Plan. We'll give you money to rebuild Europe. And for those who don't think it can be quickly done, look at what it took from 1945, a Germany in total abject destruction, not a single power plant, not a single factory, nothing left, just absolute destitution. And in 30 short years, that country was converted into a powerhouse. And now, just a half a century later, they are the predominant power in Europe. Yes. And that didn't happen by accident. It happened because of the mobilization of credit. The ability to mobilize credit is the most powerful force that a government can have. And the United States effectively turned its power to mobilize credit over to the Federal Reserve and then gave it title to every other credit mobilization in its name. So all of the wealth of Europe and all of the wealth of the rest of the world is effectively denominated in dollars. So every time a European gets up and goes to work or, in, or an African nation buys a barrel of oil, then that allows the Federal Reserve to create that many more dollars so that those elements and items are represented by money. That representation in money or the brand that I call Dollar Inc., is the predominant power on this globe, and it's not going to be taken away anytime soon. But do you think, for example, weapons of mass destruction? We all know what happened with Saddam Hussein, but he actually said that he was going to start selling oil in euros, and boom, here we came. Same thing, some say, was happening with Libya. And now China and Russia are saying that what we need is a basket of currency to transact oil. What's your take on this? Well, there is a certain amount of truth to that. You know, uh, Saddam Hussein did, in fact, write a letter to um, the American ambassador to the UN in which he said exactly that. We don't want to be paid for our oil with dollars anymore. We want to be paid in euros. And for a brief time, we did pay in euros. And if you go back and look at the chart, you'll see that this was the first time that the euro gained strength over the dollar hmm. since its creation. But sadly enough, once uh, we liberated Iraq, uh, those payments were now made in dollars again, and suddenly the euro went back to uh, its prior standing, and that growth stopped. Uh, the same is true in Iran, where Iran suggested they were going to establish an oil bourse that was going to trade exclusively oil for euros. And then a lot of saber rattling against Iran occurred. Libya, of course, one of the other nations that has its own central bank, you know, suddenly had a band of rebels that was well-funded and uh, wanted to take the country over. It is amazing to me that any nation that challenges the dollar's supremacy is dealt with as a very harsh foe. In reality, if the dollar had all the strength that it's supposed to have, if it wasn't such an illusion, then we wouldn't need this sort of military action uh, to back our currency. 
What's the status with the RAND? I, I presume they're not transacting in, in dollars, right? I mean, no. in, in euro. Well, uh, they have opened their oil bores, but um, a lot of saber rattling, I think, has backed them off. They keep moving forward, and we'll see what, what develops there. But I would suggest that if they become any threat at all to the dollar's supremacy, they'll be quickly liberated as well. Libya. They have about, what, 6 million people? And we had NATO all over them. Mm -hmm. Egypt has about 80-some million people there. And this is a strategic location because it, it borders Israel and it's, a, it's, it's great for Earth space. But we didn't get involved there. Why did we get involved in Libya so much? And why did we get rid of uh, Muammar Gaddafi, in your opinion? Well, you know, look at Hugo Chavez and you'll see right. what Muammar Gaddafi was doing. Yes. He was doing effectively the same thing. Yeah. He was taking the nation's central bank wealth the wealth generated by their central bank, and he was recycling it back into his own economy. Right. Um, you know, you just don't do this sort of thing. How is that not good is what I'm trying to understand. Well, it's very not good because... For the Fed. Right. Right. What you'll, it's the very same reason when, when Abraham Lincoln started printing the greenback. Yes. The Rothschilds put a circular out. There's, it's called the Hazard Circular. I think it's still out there. And there was even an editorial in the New York in the London Times that said that that mischievous financial policy that originates in the United States, if it is allowed to continue, then all the great minds of the world and all of the wealth of the world will gravitate toward that nation. There's no question about it. You know, without a parasite sucking the productive wealth of the country. Uh, then the real value is transmitted directly to the people. And the people grow more wealthy and the standard of living increases. This is uh, absolutely in opposition to anything that the owners of central banks prefer. Uh, they prefer us all uh, to be hungry and working and looking for jobs. And before we take our one and only intermission, Andy, I want to just read a quick excerpt from your book, which is something I found very interesting, and I suspect it before. You say the secret world of money in the book, uh, you say that George Orwell was one of the Fabians, Orwell being one of the Fabians, he knew their intent and motives and that and what Orwell was doing through his fiction was leaking their plans and that's why he was so accurate. I think year after year Orwell's work becomes more and more accurate, don't you think? Oh, indeed I do, yeah. And you know, the work of the Fabian socialists and Beatrice Webb, And the, of course, the wealth of the Rhodesian uh, minerals through the Cecil Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes Trust. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, quite honestly, set the stage for this idea of world government. And yes, uh, I think George Orwell was leaking to us the plans of this uh, organization. And the books, The Secret World of Money and Uncle Sam Cooks the Books. So you also have radio appearances and TV appearances. Tell us more how people get exposed to your work, your, your radio programs, etc. Well, through the grace of uh, Patrick Timpone and you and, and others like you who are trying to get the message out, I do uh, appear on radio and occasional television. Uh, you can follow me every Wednesday on The Real World of Money at um, oneradionetwork.com. Uh, I have a website, Andy Goss, G-A-U-S-E dot com, where a lot of my work is published. Of course, the books are available at your favorite bookstore or through your own online bookseller. 
And uh, we have a, an 800 number where you can call and reach us, as well as a quarterly newsletter, The World of Money, that uh, I edit. And the number to call is 800-468-2646. Mel, just to be fair here, I also buy and sell gold and silver coins. That's my field. That's my trade. And I think as long as we're going to have a Federal Reserve and unbacked money, the only way to protect your wealth is with gold and silver. So until they're out of business, I'm in business. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about gold and silver. I recently did a show on silver because that's what most people can afford. But we'll talk about this on the way back. Folks, once again, I'm here with monetary historian Andy Goss. This is Mel Fabregas. And you're listening to Veritas Radio. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We'll continue this interview with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the members section. Enjoy.
This is Catherine Austin Fitz, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.